Since its launch in November 2015, Fresh as the Word has been a documentation of sorts for me, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. As I journey through my love of music and pop culture, as well as using this platform to share my growth on topics important to me, which includes topics involving women's rights, people of color, and the LGBT community through the artistic lens of pop culture. As an ever-evolving podcast, I'm going back to my roots focusing more on the music artists I'm passionate about from the past and present. From the classic hip-hop artists I grew up on, to the new faces of dance, and from the metal bands I've long appreciated, to the indie alternative artists stealing my heart, Fresh of the Word aims to tell the stories of those who need their contributions to music known, while also exposing my audience to the next artist to watch out for, sometimes before they blow up. episode we are talking about the new graphic anthology Deadbeats 2 released by A Wave Blue World an independent publisher of high quality graphic novels anthologies and art books focusing on socially conscious storytelling and providing a platform for a multitude of creative voices joining me on this discussion is A Wave Blue World co-founders Wendy and Tyler Chin Tanner who started the company over 15 years ago Deadbeats 2 London Calling it's a continuation after a successful campaign for the first volume, which also received high acclaim for both its art direction and storytelling. For those unaware, Deadbeats is a full-color anthology of music-themed horror comics centered around the curiosities for sale at one peculiar record store managed by the enigmatic shopkeeper. Think Tales from the Crypt, but in a record store. For London Calling, we travel to the new Deadbeats location across the pond in London. The original editors, Joe Corallo and Eric Palicki, are back for more Deadbeats featuring over 20 new comic stories and more than 40 creators. Lisa Stroh returns to provide the cover with our interstitial narrative illustrations by Val Halverson. During our discussion, Wendy and Tyler share how the idea of Deadbeats got started, the process of putting together an anthology, how they picked creators for the stories, along with the founding of A Wave Blue World, running this company for over 15 years, how Wendy's training in sociality informs her work with A Wave Blue World and their favorite types of music. Currently, Wendy and Tyler are running a Kickstarter campaign for Deadbeats 2. So just go over to kickstarter.com and search Deadbeats 2 and it should come up pretty easily. Please go ahead and support Deadbeats 2 because it's definitely going to be a great anthology just like the first one. So now, without further ado... Let's get into my interview with Wendy and Tyler Chin Tanner of A Wave Blue World. And now a brief word from our sponsor. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel seeks to bring original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. They also provide an array of services. In the world of wrestling where there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all of their tees in-house. If you would like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, even Zubaz, 
then drop them a line. Go to 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20, the letter X, the number 20, apparel.com. All right, welcome back to the Fresh is the Word podcast. And like always, we have the freshest of guests for you. And joining me is Wendy and Tyler Chin Tanner. They are the co-publishers of A Wave Blue World, one of the dopest, you know, publishing companies out there, graphic novels. They have a new, um, they have a new uh, uh, anthology coming out. It's called uh, Dead Beats 2, London Calling. I did, uh, you know, I did uh, contribute to the first Dead Beats uh, uh, Kickstarter, you know, and it was mad dope. So I'm excited for the second one. Yo, how y'all doing today? We're doing great. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, we're really excited to be here. Cool. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk with y'all for a long time because I really dig what y'all are doing over at A Wave Blue World. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I see, you know, see a lot of dope art. Um, a lot of inclusion from different types of uh, artists, a lot of different, uh, you know, subjects, meaningful mm-hmm. subjects and everything. So, like, I really respect for, you know, have mad respect for what y'all doing. Great. Thank you. Yeah, those are a lot of things that are important to us as well. So, um, you know, just to dive into uh, Deadbeats, like, when the first one came out, like, y'all had me, like, instantly because it was like, boom, like, the cover's dope. Uh, you know, Lisa Sterl did that. She was on the podcast a while back. Um, big fan of her. And then I was like, yo, this is like Tales from the Crypt, Crypt Keeper, yeah. but in a record store? Yo, yeah. you're speaking my oh, you're speaking my language here, man, as a as a music dude, man. Like so kind of like, you know, talk to me just like the beginnings of Dead Beats for that first one. Where did that idea come from? Yeah, well, the editors, uh, Joe Corallo and Eric Poliki, uh, had the idea and they brought it to me. Uh, and I just thought the idea was great because I love getting music and comics related. You know, obviously you can only do so much on a printed page, but to get those themes in there and to do something fun like this was a call back to those old creepy and eerie, you know, you know horror books where you have like the shopkeeper or things like that. So it was just a lot of fun. Like I love horror when it's like fun in a way you know like it's really like i don't know just it's not just about grossing you out or, or blood or things like that but it, i don't know it's got some life to it and uh yeah the shopkeeper is just a really cool character and that's a great theme to tie the stories together and it just really seemed to come together like much like you were saying how it spoke to you right away it seemed like there was an audience for it and uh yeah it just really really took off and we're excited to do another volume yeah, when you were, you know, when you were first coming, you know, putting that together for the first uh, volume, you know, what was some sort of some of your ideas that you were able to do on that one and that you've been that you found out were very successful that you're bringing over to the second one? Well, I think having a main character for an anthology that can be tough. We've done other ones and we've tried to have like a, a strong cover image with with like a person rather than just like this collage of different things, because there's all these different stories. If you can have like a focal point, you know, I think that's great. So this shopkeeper, she's a great character. We put her on the covers and she's in these uh, interstitial stories along the way too. So it's not just the different stories, but you have this tour guide who takes you and shows you the different parts. And, and that's just, you know, that's just been a, 
I don't know, just a really cool thing to do with an anthology. So we are, you know, did that for the second one as well. You know, what, what were some of the, was, was there anything that, any ideas that you had for the first one that you were able to do on the second one? Ideas, and I mean, they're all by stories by different creators. So we brought in different creators who had their own ideas. Um, we went a little, tried to go a little more international with this one. That's what it's called, London Calling, where like the shopkeeper heads over, you know, to London, goes across the pond. So we were able to incorporate that a little bit more. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's the same idea, um, which just, you know, there's just tons of things you can do with that. You know, you take these artifacts or these objects or musical instruments and just tell the haunted past of it, you know, this mysterious origins of these items. So, yeah. When you're, you know, you're, you're collecting all these different stories from, you know, all these different writers and artists and everything, you know, what are you looking for, for from them? You know, how did you go out and find all these people? Well, in terms of creators, um, we're looking for a collection of like up and comers, established creators. Um, and by up and comers, people that have been doing like indie comics or getting their foot in the door of Marvel in DC, but haven't been at it in a while. But also we really looked for like brand new voices that maybe we had just seen online, things like that. Um, and in terms of what kind of stories, I mean, just, just fitting with the theme, you know, horror, but fun, um, tie in music, you know, and just let them, you know, go to work with that. I think one of the things that we can do with anthologies that is harder to do on books that are just by single or two creators together is we can practice what I like to call literary citizenship. Like we can afford to give a platform to a lot more people who, like Tyler said, are up and coming or from underrepresented communities. And we can do that all at once in an anthology and like, you know, give them something good to put on their resume. Yeah, speak more about that because there's been times when um, recently I've seen some tweets from people that they were like, yo, don't front on that anthologies because I was able to do, I did an anthology over here and it led to some mad opportunities for me. You know, there, you know, I guess there's people out there that, you know, don't want to do anthologies for whatever reason, but right. it looks like it's a great jumping off period for some. Yeah, for sure. You mean you mean people who don't want to participate in anthologies? Just just in general, not even for like this book, you know, just the idea yeah. of, you know, anthologies. Yeah, I mean, I think that for some folks who have bigger names, it can be like it can feel like it's not worth doing it, you know, cuz like, you know, it's not a huge project and they're probably really slammed with something that, you know, they've been working on for like months at a time and when you got your head in one project, it's a little bit hard to just switch gears and do something else real fast. But I think it can afford an opportunity to uh, up-and-comers and people who are just trying to break in and people who haven't really been heard of yet in the graphic novel world or in the comics world or in the mainstream world. So like, it's, it's an opportunity for us, too, as publishers to be more experimental. Yeah. And if you haven't done a lot of comics, then it's better to do a six or eight page story than try to jump right into even a 20 page, let alone a graphic <laughs> novel size yeah. thing. So um, and and if you want to get well known, I mean, the readership is there because they're reading all the stories. So, you know, you have all these people picking up the book and now they've read a story by you. So it's a real good learning opportunity, I think, for somebody who's like straight out of art school or something. Right. Because yeah. it's like it is a professional opportunity, but the stakes aren't super, super high. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, when you're looking for, you know, these up and coming uh, creators, you know, what are some things you're looking for, you know, like when you look at their work and everything, just, you know, not even for just for this project, for any project that you might be doing? Well, storytelling skills. I mean, especially these days when you're seeing most people's work online, there tends to be a lot of pinups or uh, just character sketches, you know, which are great for posting. Like, I get that. But you should definitely have a way to, where you're showing sequential art. You're doing stories, panels, establishing shots, you know, things like that. Because I'm not going to hire someone for even a six or eight page story if I don't think they can do that, if all they do are like nice pinups, you know, yeah. things like that. It's a super specific discipline to be able to do sequential art storytelling. So it's like, you know, if you just see a pinup or something that it's like, that's like a sound bite as opposed to, you know, like a full song, you know? You know, getting back to, you know, the whole Deadbeats anthology, uh, how do you, you know, how, how do you tell these stories with, you know, vastly different, a lot of different, uh, you know, creators, you know, they're coming from a lot of different backgrounds. The stories are about like a lot, have, have something to do with music, but from like a lot of different times and places and everything. How do you still like kind of keep an authenticity about it all? Huh, well, we definitely like get pitches first, you know, so the idea, so we make sure that there are ones that aren't too similar, but also you can check, yeah, are they following the theme? But we keep a pretty open mind. I mean, there's like a three bullet points to what we want your story to be. And there's a lot of creative license to just take it where you want. Uh, it can be different time periods, different parts of the globe. I mean, all that stuff we encourage. So um, I think that's a good way to get a lot of different material in, in the same book, all under the same theme. And to maintain communication with the editors, you know, because like for the editors, there's this whole kind of backstage organizational thing that has to happen because, you know, it's not just about getting individual stories that have really high quality, but they all have to work together in a narrative to make the whole book feel like a cohesive product. So, you know, I think a lot of communication between the editors and the creators has to happen in order to make that work. Yeah. And we've been working on this for nearly a year now. So people don't realize that we're just announcing the Kickstarter now and the book will be out in September. But we've been talking about this, working on it, you know, setting up the structure for it. You know, it takes there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. That the, goes pipeline, the pipeline is real long and also yeah. like any kind of creative endeavor like making a book it's like an assembly line there's so many people on it oh yeah know? yeah yeah this isn't just like boom bow bang like it's out you know <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah yeah it's a real team sport yeah and each creator is only doing like a few pages themselves but you know we've got the 50 different creators that we've got spreadsheets and drop boxes for <laughs> and just whew, it's it's can you can fill up the day just you know going through the different stories reading them all checking over the art, make sure everybody's following the same template, uh, you know, things like that. Because when you try to put it together, if you've got like different sizes or the page counts don't match up, I mean, it can get, get to be a mess real fast. So the experience, what is this, our, our eighth now? Yeah, this is number eight. This is number yeah. eight, yeah, you know, so you learn a lot yeah. along the way. We've yeah. been on the hustle and grind for 15 years. We've been doing this a long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man, yeah. <laughs> Sure. You spoke of uh, there being a narrative in these books, man. Like for uh, for Deadbeats, what was yeah. you know what was the narrative for both volumes, and did it change, like from the first one to the second one? Uh, other than the location, it was pretty much the same, right? The shopkeeper 
runs a shop. She welcomes you in, just like you were referring to the Crypt Keeper earlier. Um, gives you a little tour of the store, including some of the back room items. And then she sort of introduces an item and, and here's a story about it. So you get to learn about it. Um, this, in this situation, she's off to London auction, you know, very old world connections there to these things that, that open things up a little bit, but it's still sort of the same idea. Like she's out looking for these haunted uh, artifacts and to tell these stories about. So, you know, little twist, but essentially the same idea. Yeah, when you're you're speaking of like horror and supernatural, there's definitely like, you know, a creative license that can be there. But is there, you know, is there an authenticity to uh, the the musical items in in these stories? You know, and how, and was there any like sort of fact checking in that way? Oh, geez, not a lot. I mean, I can tell you, mine's a fictionalized take of the uh, um, of the my story is called the first uh, violin, which I worked on with Morgan Beam, which uh, I you know, we're done and it turned out great, really excited about it. But I just, I didn't even research how the violin was created. I just came up with a, a <laughs> spooky twist on it. You know, like a fairy tale. Like it was almost a, uh, what do you call it? It's like it? a Grimm's fairy yeah, tale. Yeah, Grimm's fairy tale. Yeah. Thing. So I wasn't trying to be accurate. I'm sure it was, yeah. well, clearly it was like a fairy who invented it, which yeah. didn't, didn't happen magically. So no, I, I don't think we're necessarily trying to stay accurate. There might have been some people who did some more research on it, but it, yeah, it's, it's just meant to be, you know, spooky and mysterious and, and uh, have that side. To it. And that's so, the thing. I like the fact that it's that it's horror, but it's kind of of the more spooky type because I am not into like gross horror, <laughs> you know, like I'm not into I'm not into like ultra violent gross horror, but I do like that kind of like spooky, creepy kind of sensibility and then when you mix in this sort of lead character who's a woman of color and she's really cool and then you mix in the music element like I'm sold and this is not really my kind of genre you know so I hope there's something for everyone in it because if I like it y'all should like it <laughs> <laughs> now see I'm a big music guy got you know tons of records got things on my wall here like what uh you know what kind of music are you guys into like what what's some of the things that you like should I go? Yeah, yeah, like very eclectic. She's cooler than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm weirder, you know, yeah. like I like what I like, you know. Uh, so, um, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn. BK, I, yeah. Yeah, where are you from in Brooklyn? I'm, no, I'm not from Brooklyn. I'm just, I'm from oh, Detroit. Oh, you're just, you're just picking up Brooklyn. All right, all right, I'm Brooklyn. down I'm just shouting out Brooklyn, man, because I'm a hip-hop guy, and, you, you know, yeah. when you hear Brooklyn, you got to shout it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm here in Detroit, so, like. Oh, okay. Okay. Very cool. Also, very cool. Also. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm 44. So I grew up in the sort of like conscious hip hop era. So I was really into a lot of that stuff growing up. Yeah. Uh, Public Enemy, you know, um, I like Run DMC too. Actually, my our 14 year old daughter just swiped my Run DMC hoodie yesterday. I have this Run DMC hoodie that's got like my adidas like down one sleeve and i love this thing and she like she stole it which i feel kind of torn about because on the one hand it's like don't mess up my hoodie but on the other hand it's like okay so i'm the cool mom now right right <laughs> like, right, right. but you know i also really like you know nina simone like i discovered nina simone when i was when i was in high school and like really fell in love with with her voice and that that whole genre I still listen to Nina Simone. Actually, when I was in labor with Maddie, the 14-year-old, I listened to Novus 1972, 
which is one of her albums, like on repeat, nice. like all through labor. And that like kept me, kept me going. So yeah, I mean, I, I also love like the Pixies, the Breeders, like all of that. Yeah, that's a lot of, yeah, because, yeah, I'm 40 now, and, like, like that was a lot of the stuff that I, uh, you know, listened to as a kid, you know, I'm very familiar with, like, yeah, I'm like, like, I'm a hip-hop head, and I, that, that's, and I started from young listening to that, so, you know, and then, not, like, all, like, the Pixies and stuff like that, and that, that was stuff that, you know, I heard when I was, like, a teenager, so, like, yeah, yeah. that's, like, that's my stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, we love the roots also. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, I mostly was like a rock guy, but I always, I feel like I always was getting like that one or two hip hop, your rap albums along the way, you know, just if I heard about it, it was good. I mean, started with with uh, Run DMC, Public Enemy, uh, Lauren Hill, Roots. Oh yeah, Lauren Hill. Um, got Kid Cudi recently, got into him. Um, Those are all people that like, people that don't like, like hip hop. Exactly. Well, that's like that. <laughs> <laughs> there's always those like, like the Wu Tang yeah. Clan. Like, like people could hate rap back in the day. Like yeah. hate rap, but they loved Wu Tang Clan. Right. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm also huge into Prince. Like, I'm a huge oh, Prince yeah. fan, and Prince and Bowie and like all that. Yeah. Oh, nice. But yeah, I was like ACDC and Van Halen oh, into yeah. Guns and Roses and things like that. Then I got more into like the grunge alternative. Pearl yeah. Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, um, which I still listen to over and over again. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. Twenty, thirty years later, I'm still putting those albums on. Yeah, when I was a little little kid, I was like really into like like '80s metal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then also Jimi Hendrix was my first oh, okay. yeah. first love. Mm-hmm. Like Jimi Hendrix and, and the Who when I was like yeah. six or yes. seven years old were like my favorites. You know, and my favorite group of all, my favorite band of all time is Def Leppard. So. Oh, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Ever since I was like seven years old, like I should have worn my shirt. I love. I mean, yeah, 1987 was uh, hysteria. That was the same year that um, Appetite for Destruction. Those two albums were like my favorite. Monsters, yeah, so. man, monsters of albums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wow. Yeah, that was like middle school for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. No, I remember that really well. That's when I got super into music. Yeah, yeah that's like the awakening, right? Like yeah. when you're 12, 13, you start really getting yeah, into music. Yeah, like buy your own music. That's that's a good like I start I had like a, an awakening when I was like 6 or 7 mm-hmm. that happened, but then like a couple of years I was just kind of like when I was like nine or 10 or 11 years old, I was just like, eh, whatever. But then it was like when I was 12 years old, that's when I started like getting into like hip hop and, you know, rap music, like really hard. And then yeah. some like rock stuff, like the alternative stuff at the time, like, you know, Nine Inch Nails and, oh, yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, 12 years old is like a good age for that, you know, where it's, that's always like a sliding door time where you're like, the stuff that you 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 listen to then you kind of it always sticks with you yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. i think with our kids when they were really little they were into more like gentle stuff you know like beatles like you know bob dylan um and then like as they're getting older they're getting into like harder stuff like actually our six-year-old is already kind of into metal it's weird <laughs> like, <laughs> oh man she loves that marilyn manson song of beautiful people I don't know why. That's creepy as hell. It's creepy as hell, but she just loves it. She's around. Wow. Because <laughs> she's got like you know a little baby voice, and she's got like a little lisp, so she. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
Don't repeat that line. You can't smell your own shit when you're on your knees. Yeah. Just, Oops. <laughs> Don't say that about around grandma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> when, so. you know, when it comes to, you know, dad beats, is there, is there any sort of sense of nostalgia that you kind of put in there? Like the stuff we were just talking about, like that sort of feeling that you wanted to put into any of these stories? Well, I can definitely speak for my own, where I definitely, you know, put in that uh, Grimm's, uh, fairy Grimm's fairy tale sort of feel, which I love to do. I mean, I, as soon as we said London Calling, I just thought old world UK type thing, and I wanted to do yeah. something of that sense. So, it, you know, something with fairies and and uh, kings and queens and knights and things. So that got my juices flowing. Um, well, London know, is inspiring to us also. So we, yeah. we lived there for a few years and I lived there for 15 years, but Tyler and I as a couple lived there for like, what, five years? Yeah. And our older daughter was born there. So, you know, it has meaning to us. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's not something I would know just based off of the other creators, even having looked at their stories, I'm not quite sure how much they pulled that in. I'm sure, you know, like many creators are, they're, they're pulling from their experiences and what they know and things like that, especially with the music and that they sure that they enjoy. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, but other than that, I, I don't, I don't know how to speak, you know, for any, anything specific. Yeah. When it comes to the visuals, you know, the artwork for the cover for all mm -hmm. the stories within, you know, what were you guys looking for, you know, as this, you know, anthology, what did you really want these artists to kind of portray? I mean, I think a variety. The cover, we definitely wanted a consistent feel because that first one was so arresting. We really nailed that. Lisa Sterl, you know, did that one, I think you mentioned. And so we had her back for the Kickstarter cover for, for this one. Um, that same sort of, you know, dark but energetic feel to, towards it. Um, you know, and then the art inside, we actually went for a variety. You know, we got some, you know, really energetic, cartoony stuff. We got some... I don't know, almost like collage like fine art feel to it, uh, watercolor, traditional, you know, there's a lot of variety in it. So uh, Yeah, for anthologies, I think you got to hit a, wheel, a real kind of like broad, uh, broad space in terms of people's sensibilities, because everybody likes different things. And mm -hmm. so you want to provide that for your readers. Yeah, you often hear afterwards, some people are like, well, I like this story, but this one didn't appeal to me or vice versa. And they're not the same ones. Yeah, yeah I can get real surprised by what people tell me they like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. When you're sort of like sequencing the, the stories, how do, how do you go about that? And like, how do you how do you make sure like, you know, you it just like visually even like you mm -hmm. see that there's a difference from one to the other and nothing kind of runs into each other? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think you kind of want to start off with with whatever one you think really encapsulates the tone the best, you know, especially coming from the cover image, you don't want to like anything too different right away. Um, and then you just sort of look for balances in a narrative like, all right, if we got on this sort of in this mood, let's try to change it up a little bit, you know, into this and, and just try to find a flow. I mean, you don't know what you're getting until it all comes in. But then I think you just sort of like spread it out, even if you're talking visually, you know, make like a board of it and, and just see what narratives, you know, both visually and and story wise, uh, you know, what's there. Yeah, you got a, you got a lot of tools to work with because in comics you have 
both the visual narrative and the narrative of the words. So you can use either one of those or both to find a connective thread to move from one story to another in terms of sequencing. And, and sometimes you can just see like this small like visual thing, like yeah. there's a car in this one, like they leave in a car in that story, but somebody shows up in the, a car in the first one or something. I mean, you don't want to get too gimmicky. Um, an item that somebody has, I don't know, some visual tie that you may like, oh, let's go from that to that. You know? But then other times you also want to have like a palette cleanser. So yeah. sometimes you can like, you know, just almost do like a jump cut in a yeah. way, right? Like visually and with the story, you just like, you know, create a break and then start again with another arc. And you can do that by contrasting stories, like two that have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, when you get one of those stories that like looks like nothing you've you've seen somewhere, and you you don't want to start with that one, but you're like, oh, we kind of we're hitting this one theme for a little while. Let's just go full palette cleanser with this, yeah. you know, crazy collage type version one or whatever. Yeah. So you know, you two have been doing a wave blue world, you know, for like over fifteen years now. Um, mm -hmm. What really, you know, caught caught my eye is, you know, the visuals on the covers, uh, you know, the names of the stories or the books, whatever. The um, and the fact that you know, a lot of the things that you were guys were dealing with in these stories with all these collaborators were, you know, about you know like culture and race and identity and stuff like that. What you know. How important was it for you guys to like really make sure that there is a message behind whatever you're doing, whether it's in a serious way or in a fun way, whatever? How did you balance all that? Well, I think that's really it. I mean, we want a message behind what we're doing. We're not, this isn't just fan fiction or genre love or anything like that. We, we uh, will have a variety of concepts and genres, but we want stories that really have something to say about the world, about humanity, how we relate to each other, about making the world a better place. I mean, that's what story is at, at the heart of it. And we just really want to make sure whatever we're doing has some sort of, of message and is, is saying something. I think what, the way to make the best art is to really you know, find what's most important to you mm. and the kinds of stories that you are best able to tell. And those are the ones that you can deliver with the most passion and with, with the most um, intensity and authenticity and heart, you know? So the issues that we have in our books are issues that are those things for us that are the most important to us. You know, and I was reading that, um, that Wendy, you're a, a trained sociologist. Like, how, do, how, do, how does that help sort of, you know, view all these stories that you're, uh, you know, being submitted or he's doing or whatever? Like, how do you, how do you sort of, you know, how do you use that to sort of, uh, you know, bring everything together? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more that um, it informs a lot of my practice as both a creator and as a publisher. Like, it keeps me rooted in this idea of, like, how can I improve my social activism? How can I improve my literary citizenship in this position of being a gatekeeper, basically? You know, and I'm constantly learning and constantly examining my own biases and my own blind spots and my own privilege. And, you know, we try to bring that to the table at work and, you know, constantly move forward in that way. Whether that be through like our hiring practices, whether that be through like the next story ideas or, or whatever, just kind of a, across the board. So it's definitely like always there, always present because it matters to us. 
and, and we live it like in our life. I'm a woman of color. Uh, Tyler is, you know, the, the patriarch and, and, you know, husband of a family of color. We have two girls. So, you know, these issues are at the fore of our, our own personal life. You know, along with it just being personal, like the past five years have been just like, uh, you know, a clusterfuck of every sort of, you know, cultural and identity and race yeah. movement, you know, more so like, you know, it was really intense, you know, how did, you know, what did you learn during that time? And, you know, what did you put it into your work, you know, through a, a wave blue world and like, what did you learn from that experience too? I mean, I think, I think that I learned that like allyship and solidarity is more important than ever and to be really loud about it, you know, and to not, not be worried about not selling or not be worried about like, you know, oh, some of our audience is going to be turned off by it. You know what? The, those folks were not our audience anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a tough time for us, you know, I mean, for everybody, but like, you know, dealing with that, just getting by and, and surviving yourself, yeah. like, to, you know, what we're going through mentally and emotionally dealing with all these issues and then trying to keep working can be tough. So right. we've really tried to lean into like what we had to say, what we could do to help during this time um, and be okay with, with not not doing some things as well you know i mean we have to cut back on some things but to focus on what's important you know and maybe publishing less like when we went had the whole um, pandemic thing i was like i have no problem dialing this back a little didn't mean we went into hiding or we stopped caring about the important issues but all right we're publishing a little bit less we're going to take some time not shipping things out but what you know let's get a little more grounded, a little bit more centered on what's important to us and what we want this company to be. Yeah. And for that reason, I feel like we're, hopefully we're coming out of it. I mean, we're certainly coming out of uh, the political nightmare a little bit, hopefully the pandemic as well. You know, I just feel like we're a little bit more grounded in who we are and just ready to continue, you know, being who we've been for the last 15 years, but just, you know, more vocal about it, you know, reaching a bigger audience and um you know i mean hopefully being a source of comfort for some people who these issues are important to them and knowing that there's a publisher out there trying to do their best with all of it yeah i mean i think self-care and prioritization mm -hmm. is also something that like probably yeah. all of us have learned this year right yeah like <laughs> when when things get really intense the things that don't matter fall away Right. And you kind of see what what the important things are, the priorities are. When you think of, you know, when you look back to, you know, 15 years ago, you know, starting this company, what, you know, what really sticks out in your, in your mind? And how do you feel like, you know, here in 2021, you've uh, improved on all that? Oh, man, I think back to like, <laughs> how little I knew. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's been 15 years of learning and, um, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't think I was like foolish when I went about it. You know, I really, you know, I was going to art school. I had a lot of great teachers and Joe Huber to, to lean on and give me a lot of information, but I was still just so new at it all. And, and you know, when they say like, I never liked the expression that much, you know, fake it till you make it. Cause 
I mean, I don't think you should fake anything, but the idea is you sometimes you just have to just jump in and, and learn to swim while you're, while you're in there, you know, as long as you're really learning and improving. Right. But just think back to that 15 years ago, man, what I know now, you know, where we are versus then. I mean, there was no other way to do it, but, but that, I mean, that's, that's what I think about when I think, thinking 15 years ago. You didn't, you? you didn't learn how to um, be a business person in art school. That's the thing. I mm. mean, like what he was trained to do in art school was to draw and to write. He was yeah. not trained how to run his own business. And, you know, I, I think, well, first of all, we founded the, the company the same year we got married, the same summer we got married. So like our family life and the life of this business have been enmeshed from the jump. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was totally like, yeah, let's go for it. Because I think for me, just like growing up the way I did, my parents have a little art supply store in Brooklyn. And, you know, so I grew up in a mom and pop shop. I grew up seeing my parents working together. My dad also worked at city college like he worked in the art department of yeah. like a local city college but you know he and my mom ran this store together as well as more her store but they still ran it together so you know that was like that that was my modeling that was like what was normal for me so it seemed totally normal for me that we should also have a family business you know and it didn't scare me it didn't seem like right. crazy or anything it seemed totally normal yeah but it was weird because I didn't even realize that for a little while in. It's like, wait, I've never actually taken any classes <laughs> on running a business yeah. or bookkeeping. I mean, that all, I learned all that stuff yeah, on the fly. Like yeah. I knew comic books inside and out, or at least, you know, my, you know, reading them my whole life. And then I went to the, you know, art school and learned quite a bit there. Um, still had plenty to learn. But yeah, when I look back at it, I'd be like, oh, I just learned how to run a business like on the fly. <laughs> like, watching like instructional videos and reading some books and stuff but we grew it really slowly and i think yeah. that that was that was really good you yeah. know because like the stakes weren't super high like we didn't go bust because you know we were splashing out too much it was right yeah and especially with the growth of digital and then kickstarter and things like that that just made it so much easier to uh i don't find an, a grander audience without needing as much seed money every time you make something because yeah. uh you know, I started off just making one book at a time and it would take three years to do, you know, and get the book out and start the other one. And then with that, we started getting into the anthologies and things just started kind of growing. And I was like, oh my goodness, like <laughs> this is really a company now, but you know, it's still us. Um, we did bring on some staff, you know, we do it all remotely, but you know, we're here. I mean, it's just home studio office. So. We only very recently got book distribution too. So like we only went national to yeah. the national bookstores, what, like not even two years ago, like right. 18 months ago. Yeah. 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 So. And then the pandemic hit. So that was awesome. Always eventful for sure. But uh, yeah. You know, when you, uh, when you look back, what, how are you able to build your audience to the factor where they're going to spend their harder money on your product and stick around for the next thing that comes out? Well, I tell you, I've always focused on content. Like I want to make something that people will want to read before I'm going to worry about reaching the audience. I mean, you have to do marketing, you have to get out there, you know, 
but I'd r much rather have a product that I think people will love, but I'm not sure I can get it to as many people as I should than make something that I don't think people will like that well, or just sort of, and then spend a lot of time getting it in front of people's faces or, you know, things like that. So content is number one, you know, um, my favorite or the most important marketing thing for me has always been a cover design and covering a logo. You know, yeah. they say you can't judge a book by a cover and that's true. The content does come first, but man, you get a great cover, always focused on that. Great logo, work with great designers, work with great cover artists who know like how to make a cover. Um, that's that's marketing number one, one for me. Then you worry about social media ads, things like that, because it gets so much easier from there. Yeah, and um, even with the, the social media part, that's what really drew my attention to mm -hmm. a wave blue world was that you had to had this these cool visuals yeah that yeah. were you know put out there you know on you know facebook and whatever yeah. and it really drew me into it mm -hmm. and once i you know i looked at I, you know i looked at the post and everything and i saw that there was like some real meaning behind it all you know there was this was this is different than just the regular you know comic book yeah. company or whatever oh i'm really glad to hear that because yeah. you know i think getting that kind of feedback is helpful because sometimes we try stuff and we don't know <laughs> what the impact is and it's like oh should we be spending our time and energy doing that but it's good to hear that it does draw in people yeah i mean there's just so much noise on social media it can be hard to judge i mean we just try to be consistent you know like i said we we make projects we love we make them as good as we can be and then just try to get them out there and and no people, but you can't, you don't really have a measurement of how well it's absorbing everything you just, just described. You can't measure that with a like or a heart or whatever, you know? So you just hope it's having some lasting impact on people. Right. It was always like, yo, that's a cool logo. Uh, those are cool, uh, cool covers and everything. And then, but, but I also think that it, it coupled well with seeing both of your, uh, you know, your presence online individually. I was, you know, I got to really, you know, through seeing you guys on Facebook and everything, was able to really learn what you guys were about. And, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of drew me into the company more, more so. Yeah, I mean, that's another part of our brand. I mean, we are who we are, you know, we're not trying to be like, we're not trying to like toe the line of anything so that nobody gets, you know, offended or bothered or disagrees with our views. I mean, we have our views, we're out there. You know, we don't get too argumentative or, you know, if we can help it or try to like, you know, fight battles, but we'll support the things we support, the movements, you know, causes and people can make their own opinions. Yeah. Can, okay. So uh, for dad beats too, where, uh, you know, you're going to be doing a Kickstarter campaign for that. Uh, talk about the campaign and what, what we can expect for the, you know, the tears the pride, whatever the, the parts of it, which you're offering, you know, you know, talk about that more. Yeah, you know, the more we've been doing it, I think the more we've pared it down and simplified it a bit, right? It's about the book, it's about the anthology. So we offer the book digitally, we offer it as a physical reward, which we'll send out, the book itself. Um, we usually always do a sticker of the logo because, you know, those logos are great. You know, it's a really cool, you know, if you remember, and then we've got the second one here. Yeah. Um, we kind of throw that in. We do a process PDF for people to see behind the scenes artwork. Um, we're offering a pack of both of them, you know, if somebody didn't get the first one or wants another, another copy of it. Um, we do a book plate, which is a good way to get signatures, especially now with more of the virtual world and not as much 
conventions and things like that. Like it's a good way to get a bunch of signatures all with your book. Um, and I mean, that's really it. Like I said, like we don't, we don't, we don't fuss around too much with too many merchandising or for extra things. We, we might, we're not going to launch with a t-shirt. I could add one on later. Maybe that would be a good halfway through. Like the t-shirts are good. Yeah. Well, yeah. we did the first one and the logo isn't that different. So I wasn't sure. Like it just says London calling underneath it. So I wasn't sure if it was worth doing a second one or not, but I'm sure we'll have new audience members. So I don't know. That's something we'll see along the yeah, way. Yeah, we'll think about that. And Tyler does all the shipping yeah. by hand, and he's a meticulous shipper. I keep meaning to uh, do a video of him mm. doing his shipping because he's got a method, and he's got his little shipping station, like, on top of the laundry. <laughs> I hate because right, right. I think he went to <laughs> I hate when things come messed up or just in a little bumble envelope or whatever. Man, I so, feel you, yeah. man. I feel yeah. you because all my adult life, I've been like randomly just selling stuff, like starting on eBay and then yeah. being a record trader. And then these days I'm really, I'm, I'm like uh, selling a lot of uh, records and CDs on Discogs. So yeah. I've been shipping my whole adult life and I actually get joy out of the shipping process. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. You got to get what the material, you get the, you know, your supplies and you just, you have your method and it gets easier to do it once you have your routine. It's like, okay, pack it in this, put this on top of this and that, ship it out and people get their book, not all mangled, which I've gotten Kickstarters where I'm like, ah, so you, you know, you pay this money. Oh, yeah, I've had, yeah, I've had some horrible, like, yeah. I've had some horrible shipping and like, and like I said, I buy records and Sometimes it'd be the the biggest companies that have the worst shipping. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, what the what the what, what, what the fuck? The person doing it doesn't care because it's you know they don't have their their heart in the thing. Yeah. I'm like, what is this? Oh my yeah. god. No. <laughs> it's really so you know, yeah. I want people if they order from us, whether it's Kickstarter or through our website, to feel like they're getting a gift, like something special shows yeah. up. You know, to thank them for backing our campaign or you know, buying directly from us. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I feel you, man. Music, I, he gets into the zone. Like, yeah. I think it's like a meditation for him. A little Dude, bit. I, totally, I, I feel you, man. I totally understand, you know. <laughs> it gets to the point, like, where I was hoarding boxes in my uh, my apartment. Uh, um, yep. Over, like, in the closet. I got this, like, walk-in closet. To the point where I, I looked and I'm like, I got to get rid of some of these boxes. I got to mm -hmm. get rid of a lot of these boxes. Yeah. <laughs> and I finally did and everything's like organized in there. But I still have like probably, you know, six feet tall of like record mailers that I, yeah. you know, I save, you know, but. <laughs> yeah, well, you want to buy in bulk and, you know, you want to have them on hand when you're ready to ship. So, I mean, it's just sort of you got to make room for it, I guess. The nice thing, too, is that we make sure to use as much recycled shipping material as possible. Yeah. That's like we lived in Portland for like five or six years. So we got super into like composting and recycling and all that. So that's important to us, too. Just being environmentally conscious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Most anything that I, I use, it's been like reused. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Perfect. Nope. So, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, the Deadbeats anthology, you know, one and two, like, what do you hope your audience gets out of, you know, reading these, uh, reading these books? 
Oh man. Um, geez, I mean, I just hope they'd enjoy reading it. You know, I, I don't know that there's a lot that we really are focused on people getting out of I mean, Each story has its own, their own message. Um, but I mean, pleasure is at yeah. the center of it, right? I mean, right. we hope that they get a, a, a sense of pleasure and a sense of like escapism from it. Right. That's, that's why we read, right? We read to, to, feel and we read to feel connected to other people we read so that we can feel less alone so yeah yeah just enjoyment we've we've got we've got so much diversity of of experience and life you know in the creators and in their stories i think i think that's brought in there naturally that we didn't really want to hit anybody over the head with any message too much because just just putting this book out i think you know is is a message in of itself yeah. Well, it's been uh, great talking with you, Wendy. Yeah. Great talking Bye. with you, Tyler. Um, where can people go online to get more information about, you know, Deadbeats or, you know, anything that uh, A Wave Blue World is doing? Well, our website is real simple. It's four letters, awbw.com, you know, with the abbreviation for A Wave Blue World. Uh, if you go on a Kickstarter and just type in Deadbeats or Deadbeats 2, London Calling, you know, you'll find it. I think you know, it's pretty easy to search on there. Yeah. We uh, put our kids to work in this Kickstarter. Oh yeah. Video. You guys got to watch the video. <laughs> our 14 year old daughter makes her, uh, well, no, she doesn't make her debut, but she does the takeover of the video. So. Yeah. And our six year old makes a, makes a cameo. Yeah. So. Thank you for listening to the fresh of the word podcast hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K fresh Frazier empowered by anchor at anchor.fm slash fresh of the word. Fresh of the Word theme music provided by Steve O. You can find more of his productions at imsteveo.bandcamp.com. And that's E-Y-E-A-M-S-T-E-V-E-O.bandcamp.com. Fresh of the Word is available on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Fresh of the Word, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. Follow Fresh of the Word on social media on Twitter at Fresh of the Pod, on Instagram at Fresh of the Word Podcast, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Fresh the Word. For more information about Fresh of the Word and our other podcasts, Breaking Records and Renaissance Soul, and a collection of pop culture articles and reviews, please visit freshofthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye. And good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.